Father, thank you for being in this place. Um, thank you for uh, the love you have uh, for your body, the love you have for your church, and the way in which uh, you, you purify us, you make us uh, holy and whole again in your love. God, I pray that uh, even though this is a, uh, this is a, uh, a day that we celebrate every year with Palm Sunday, Father, I pray that uh, we would see you and what you have for us with fresh eyes. Um, so, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place to do a work in our heart, a work in our lives, and I pray that your word would produce fruit. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are note takers, you know already that I went bizarro Rob this week. So we had whatever that was that you did last week, Rob, that I could never do because I, I don't I don't even know if I have a license to PowerPoint. I'm not sure. Uh, but that was incredible. I'm still wheeling a little bit. Uh, but no, we went, uh, we went with a no notes page. And so if you're a listener, feel free to listen. If you're a note taker, feel free to, uh, to, to poke at what's, uh, what pokes you during this, during this message. Uh, but we come to Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a Sunday that we look at every year. It's the start of the Passion Week. And uh, it's, it's definitely one that we've looked at from uh, many different angles throughout the year. Um, and yet again, I, I hope that we can look at this today with fresh eyes. No, most of you, when you think of Palm Sunday, maybe you have the memories that I do of Palm Sunday, of, uh, of dressing up in some kind of old sheet or, or putting mom's towel around your head and tying it with a little, little piece of fabric and, uh, and throwing down coats or whatever extra cloth they had at the church and, and waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. And typically there's some kid who's crying because they got hit in the face with the palm branch and, and the children's director is like, shut I'm going to tell your mom. And it becomes this whole big thing. We didn't have that this year. Uh, but, but those are my earliest memories of, of Palm Sunday and, and the truth is that as I look back on those weeks, I had no idea what I was doing. I just remember like sitting there nervously in back of the church holding my palm branch and just kind of waiting for the teacher to go, okay, okay, like, get us in there like Marines, like go, 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 go. Like I'm jumping out of a helicopter and, and just like going up like, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is something i don't know what is the guy next to me saying and and i really didn't know what was going on but i was a part of some kind of moment that everyone else was taking pictures over or ooing and eyeing over and it's funny when we come to this passage every year uh in a different way we see a similar kind of scene that's happening here there's a lot of commotion. Uh, there seems to be this big celebration. But at the center of it is a crowd of people that really don't understand what's going on. And, and for those of you who have been to Palm Sundays in the past, you kind of know the details surrounding this. But we're, we're going to read through this familiar passage. We're going to quickly work through it and the one that follows. Um, again, hopefully with fresh eyes, hopefully seeing something that God has to say to us today through all of this. Uh, but again, it's important for us to realize um, that the crowds who were there that day didn't really understand who Jesus was and what he was there to do. They didn't. And the question that we have to ask ourselves today in 2022 is, are we in danger of falling into that same mindset? 
either with what Christ is doing today, what he's doing in our lives, or what he will one day come to do. Do we have a proper mindset, or are we in danger of the same palm branch hysteria and nobody really actually knows what's happening? So let's take a look at this passage today, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and we're actually going to read uh, through verse 17, uh, but we'll kind of start with that first chunk of 11 verses. If you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, we are going to be on page 826, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, uh, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, the, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now again, this is the same story that we read almost every Palm Sunday. Maybe we read it from a, from a different one of the Gospels, but again, uh, we read this same story. And if you're familiar, uh, if you're not familiar with this story, if you have maybe forgotten some of the facts surrounding it, but you know enough to know what this week means and what it ends up as, you might be standing here, or sitting here rather, I don't think any of you are standing here, but you might be sitting here scratching your heads a little bit saying, okay, how do we get from this scene on Palm Sunday? Where people are laying down their cloaks, shouting Hosanna, welcoming Jesus into the city with shouts and praises. How do we get from here to the scene that we see on Good Friday. It's not a lot of time. And if you look at all of the Gospels and kind of what comes after the order of uh, the triumphal entry, you see Jesus isn't doing a whole lot in his earthly ministry from here on out. He has a very long sesh of private teaching with his disciples. But as far as his public ministry, he's not doing many controversial things. He isn't going to to conquer new lands, right? He isn't going in and, and picking fights with any world leaders. He isn't walking through Jerusalem with an I Heart Rome t-shirt on. He's not doing anything that anybody would really look at that's that outside of the norm of what he has done for the previous three years. And yet, in less than a week's time, we are going to see many who are in this crowd today who are shouting Hosanna, crying, crucify him. How do we get there? It's not hard for us to understand how the religious leaders have been biding their time up to this point, how they've wanted this to happen for a while. So we get that they're getting what they want out of this week 
But the crowds, how do we get there with all of these people? What changed them so quickly? Let's take a look at the following verses and see if there is a clue. Verse 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethpage and lodged there. So this is a scene that... Uh, we see this second cleansing of the temple. Uh, this is something that we see in both Mark and Luke. And the event basically mirrors exactly what happens in his earlier cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. So we have two temple cleansings. Not sure if you're aware of that. But we have one right after his first miracle where he turns water into grape juice. And... <laughs> Kidding. Uh, we have right after that miracle, he goes in and cleanses the temple. So kind of at the beginning of his ministry and then kind of bookends it nearing the end of his ministry. He once again goes into the temple and clears house. Why? Why? Now, again, this doesn't give us a whole lot to go on as far as like why the crowds turned on him in this moment. But I think there is a clue that we need to uncover within this. But first, let's talk about the temple a little bit, okay? So both times, Jesus enters the temple. This is the place that was very much the centerpiece of the of, of Jewish culture and Judaism as a whole. This is a place where the presence of the one true God dwelt in the midst of the people. A place where his face and his forgiveness was sought through worship and prayer and sacrifice. And this is where Jesus comes the day after triumphantly entering into Jerusalem. Which again, this makes perfect sense. If Jesus is coming to overthrow Rome and stir up the Jewish people and and, and raise Judaism to its place of prominence and to overthrow the systems of oppression, it would make perfect sense for him to ride into Jerusalem to start his crusade, to start his campaign. However, instead of embracing the heart of Judaism and elevating it to new heights as their king, instead of entering the temple to declare war on Rome and promise freedom from oppression, instead of doing the very things that the crowd so believed and wanted him to do, Jesus once again goes to war with the polluted religious practices of the day, as he did back in John chapter 2. He once again cleanses the temple courts and calls for purity of religion within God's house and does so again during Passover where the most eyeballs would witness this event, right? Because during this time, the population of Jerusalem went up, 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 up because everybody came in for Passover. So this is a widely witnessed event, which once again 
We can understand why the religious leaders would walk out of this scene and demand his death, would want it all the more. And yet, as we read in verses 14 through 17, did this do anything to change the hearts of the people? No. In fact, they they came to him, right? They came to him seeking healing. The children praised his name, the lame and the and the blind. They came to him and 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 wanted healing from him. To them it was like he had reached superstar status once again. So how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, we can't forget that there were different kinds of oppression that a first century Jewish person would have faced during this time. Now, the religious leaders of the day were a different kind of oppressor, but they were an oppressor no less. And we cannot forget that. So put yourself in the shoes of someone who maybe doesn't live in Jerusalem, but lives in one of the surrounding villages. And you have to, 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 to come to Jerusalem for the time of Passover, you have to make a little bit of a haul. This is a commitment for you and your family. But you know what? You make it because you want to be in that great city for Passover. Not only that, but you want to provide a sacrifice within the temple during the time of Passover. That makes sense, right? So what do you do? You go out to your flock and you look around and you find, you find that sheep. Not that other sheep. Not the one-legged, one-eyed goat, right? You go and you find the sheep with the big puffy wool and all that good stuff. And you're like, yep, I got you. You're, you're coming with me. And so you make this trek from wherever you are, right? You're not hopping on a train or a plane or an automobile or anything else that John Candy would ride with you. No, you are going, you are going by foot or by horse into the city of Jerusalem. And so you come to the temple into the court of the Gentiles. And you come up with your pleasing sacrifice, the best that you have to offer. And you walk up to the chief priest and say, I'm here from such and such a town. This is my family. We would like to present this sacrifice before the Lord as an act of worship. And the chief priest looks at you, looks at the sheep, looks at you and says, mm mm Sorry. It's actually my job to approve sacrifices before they're offered to the Lord. And I got to tell you, the one that you brought, I know you think this is like the creme de la creme, but it's not that good. I'm sorry. We can't offer this before the Lord. It doesn't pass the eyeball test of me. So don't worry, though. You can still offer a sacrifice because guess what I have right here to offer you? All of these pre-approved animals from sheeps to doves, that I have already said would satisfy the Lord. And you can purchase them right here for the low, low price of ten times what the animal is worth. But you've come and so you're like, fine, stupid chief priest. How much do I owe you? And he goes, oh, you're using currency from your land, aren't you? You don't have the currency that we use in Jerusalem. Oh, this is a pro- this is awkward. But that's okay. That's okay. Guess what? We have money changers right here who will change it out for 25 cents on the dollar. <clears throat> so if you give us your money, we'll go ahead and exchange it for you. And then, you know, you can purchase your 10 times the price of what it's worth sacrifice and get 75 cents on your dollar and you can offer your sacrifice. And everyone named me wins. 
And guess what else? The vendors who are there to provide these sacrifices are paying for their spot in the court of the Gentiles. And the money changers who are there to lend you their services are paying for their spot in the court of Gentiles. So think of the money that is gained by the religious leaders of the day by one out of town, not worthy sacrifice. And now consider the scene where Jesus goes into that temple and flips the tables of the money changers and, and quotes Isaiah 56-7 and says, You have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. He knew exactly what he was doing. And think of all the eyeballs on there, maybe waiting in line to get their sacrifices, knowing that the one they brought probably will not be good enough in this corrupt system. Looking at Jesus, flipping the tables, flipping the money lenders, currency from all different lands, flying everywhere. And what do they say? Hosanna. Which means what? Come save us. You're the one. You're the one, not just to release us from the oppressors in Rome. You are the ones who are coming to release us from all oppression, from the oppression of this broken, corrupt system. You've come for us. You've come to give us not just some of what we long for. You came to deliver on everything that we long for. Crowds aren't turning at this point, people. They're stoked. I mean, their, their, their level of expectation is at an all-time high. Would we agree? I mean, come on. This is our Savior. This is the one the prophets spoke about. This is everything that we have waited for. Maybe. Let's, uh, let's take a look at maybe a slight change in the weather. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 38. I realize we're covering big chunks of Scripture. We don't get to do the, uh, the, the exegetical work that we normally love to work through, but hopefully you are seeing a picture that is being painted as we walk through these passages. So as we go to John chapter 12, 27 through 38, we see this interchange between Jesus and the crowds. See if you can uh, notice kind of a... Maybe a change in perspective or, or maybe where expectations kind of run headlong into reality. Starting in verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 34, emphasis mine. So the crowds answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you. For a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him. Now we can't say for sure that this is the moment. We cannot say for sure that this is the moment where the crowds turn. This is an interchange between Jesus and the crowds that only takes place in the Gospel of John. We don't see it anywhere else. And yet, John has a very interesting positioning of this interchange. This really marks the end of Jesus' public earthly ministry. From here on out, in the Gospel of John, he goes to his twelve. And his three, right? His circles get smaller, not bigger. And what we see taking place in this interchange is the expectations of the people running headlong into the reality of what Jesus was coming to do. He revealed his plans not to, not to stay forever, not to reign as king forever, but instead to come as a humble Messiah on a donkey and to be delivered up for the sins of man as the perfect sacrifice, right? He says, I am going to be offered up so that those who believe in me will have life. He predicts his death, and the people say, wait, what? You're, you're, you're not sticking around? You're, you're, you're going to be offered up? No, no, sorry, that's not good enough because, you know, we actually, we actually know about the prophecies that were given to Daniel. Because in Jan- Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, the son of man that you claim to be. But what about this son of man? Coming on the clouds of heaven, he comes. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, this Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And what about the prophecies that were given to Isaiah? How can you claim to be this, this king, this one who has come, when it says so clearly in Isaiah 9, 6 through 8, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They knew that. They knew about these prophecies. And while we don't know if this is the exact moment where their hearts turn from fan 
to somebody who was a, a willing participant in crying out for his crucifixion. We can't say for sure that this is the moment. If you read on, and I encourage you to do so this week as you prepare your hearts and minds for Good Friday and Easter and, and, and you set your gaze on what this week is all about. Read that following section because in it, John uses prophecies from Isaiah to, to really paint that change in the weather and say this was a prophesied hardening of the people's hearts. This was a prophesied hardening that led to a prophesied rejection that God is doing something in the midst of the people, even if the people didn't catch it. That he never stopped coming in to fulfill the prophecies that were mentioned. He never stopped coming to fulfill the need for a Messiah, for a Savior. He never stopped doing what he set out to do, to reveal the Father, to fulfill the will of the Father, and to become the one who the prophets had spoken of. And yet, the people were expecting, were wanting something completely different. And so as the religious leaders of the day continue to carry out their murderous plans, it's not hard to see how those disillusioned by discovering that Jesus won't deliver as, he, as they had hoped he would could swing from a joyful crowd to an angry mob with little more than a nudge. I mean, think about us, guys. Think about our human condition. Think about the most cliched example that we can create. Husband, long day at work, right? Long day. It was a Monday. Oh, a Monday. Your wife will surely understand. And so when you come home from this long Monday, you expect to be greeted at the door with, with your wife all, all dressed up waiting for you to come home and all your children standing in a row waiting for you like this. And your wife meets you at the door with a kiss on the cheek and a cold beverage and says, Honey, welcome home. I know you've had a long day. I know it's been a Monday. And I know that probably the last thing that you want to do is worry about anything that has happened in this home. And so go take a load off. Go sit in the recliner. Do people have recliners anymore? Is that, is that a thing? People have recliners? I know my parents have recliners. I don't know. The, the, the couches, they get bigger. And it's like, where do you put the recliner? Anyway. Um, and so she looks and says, honey, go take a load off. Go sit on your favorite easy chair. And here, I've, I've made you an, an appetizer of nachos. And I just want you to sit here, catch up on the wide world of sports. Turn on the ESPN and just check what happened today in the wide world of sports? And I have already started dinner. It will be just ready momentarily, but just take a load off. Does that look like your Monday? And you may expect it to be your Monday after you come home from a long Monday of work. But what is the reality of the situation? Your wife greets you at the door with baby in arms who just poopied themselves and says, here you go, while she goes into the bathroom, shuts the door and locks it because it's the first day she, it's the first time all day she's been able to be alone. And you hear her call from, uh, from the bathroom, hey, you're gonna be with the baby for a while. I haven't even started thinking about dinner. I'm sorry, um, we'll be eating when we can. And you're sitting there with your poopy child thinking, my Monday's not over yet. 
the expectation you had ran headlong into reality. Or how about the wife? Let's go with another cliche, right? What's a Monday like at home? You had Sunday where you go to church twice and you get home later than normal and you eat later than normal and they go to bed later than normal and they wake up a little angrier than normal. And so now it is a Monday from Beelzebub and you're just sitting there like, when will this Monday end? When will my knight walk through the door and say, bum ba da honey, I'm home. I know you've had a long day. I know these kids have been little hellions, but guess what? I'm here for you because I love you. And I'm here to offer the respite that you not only want, but deserve. And so here's what I want you to do. Go upstairs. Draw yourself a hot bath. I will be thinking about a plan for dinner and also how I can cleaneth it up for you. So please... Take a load off, wife. I understand that you have a full-time job, too, and yours doesn't end until the babies are in bed. All the women out there are just like, ah. (laughs) And yet, what is the reality of the situation? Hubby lost the big sale. Hubby got yelled at by the boss. Hubby had a really long day at work, and so he walks through the door, doesn't say much more than a grunted hello, And before he even asks you how your day was, what does he typically ask? When's dinner? And he looks around and you can tell he's already annoyed by the level of noise that is going on from the kids who are still in their pajamas. And he's just kind of looking at you like, what did you do all day? Expectation, reality. And what happens when those two don't align? How long before, hmm, I don't know, attitudes get sour or even hostile or murderous? <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, when I, when I think of, uh, when I think of big blowouts that me and Olivia have, we, we've had these before. It's like, man, I get home from a day of slinging insurance or a day of slinging other stuff in ministry. And I get home and it's just like, man, I just, I just want to come into my sanctuary. And instead I come into a sanitarium. Like it's just, it's nuts, right? And she comes home expecting me to meet her right where she's at. And instead I come home and I'm still thinking about the call that I just hung up on as I walked through the door. And all of a sudden we're just not in the same place. And, and it gets ugly really quick. And so as we sit here and we consider the, let's consider for a second the level of expectation that these people have upon Jesus. Hosanna, come save us. Blessed is he, the one who has come to save us. This guy is going to free us from Roman oppression. This guy is going to free us from the oppressive religious system. This guy is going to be our king now and forever. And he's not going anywhere. He's coming to make all the wrongs right. He's coming to find everything that is broken in this life and to fix it and to offer salvation from our circumstances. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to save us. What? You're going to be... You're going to be offered up? You're going somewhere? (laughs) No, no, buddy. You're sticking around. You're our forever king. You're our forever meal ticket. You're our forever Messiah. You are here. You can't go anywhere. 
And how easy it would be to look at this man and say, maybe from the slight suggestion of the religious leaders, can you believe this guy? What a fraud. What a liar. What a blasphemer. You know what this guy deserves. I would rather have somebody who knowingly commits crimes and we know what we're getting out of him than some lying, phony, fraud, blasphemer claiming to be God but not deliver. No. He's not going to give you what he promised. He's already telling you he's going to go away. Well, you know what? Let's help him get there. Let's help him get there. It doesn't take a whole lot when we consider the human condition and how much goes into the things that we hope for and the devastation we feel when what we expect, what we hope for, doesn't measure up with reality. Look at your own heart and how long would it be before you were one in the crowd crying for him to be crucified? I mean, how much do we love just when like Christian leaders fall and all of a sudden it's like, put them on blast. Like we love it when people don't measure up to our expectations. We love to call out their stuff because it makes us feel better about our stuff, right? And so put in the same position where this guy of just the highest magnitude of expectation doesn't measure up. You're telling me you wouldn't want to get on a blast site and blog? You're telling me you wouldn't want to go to the rally you wouldn't want to go to the, to, the, to the battle lines and hold up your picket signs and say, no, this guy needs to go. I think we see a whole lot more of us in, in this story, if, if we're honest. And so, um, it's not hard for us to, to see how this story could end with exactly the the horrors that we're going to relive and witness and celebrate this Friday. Because the fact is that this was all a part of God's plan. The people's heart hardening, them turning, them shouting crucify. Jesus was just doing what Jesus was always here to do, and that is to fulfill the scriptures to become that Messiah and to one day come and rule and reign forever as king. It was all a part of his plan, even if we had different expectations, even if we didn't get it from step one. And yet the beautiful thing now is that we have the fullness of scriptures to look back on and say, oh, I get it. I get how they could be a little confused looking at Daniel or looking at Isaiah and thinking that maybe maybe this Jesus was coming to do something different. I, I kind of get how they could get there. And yet now that we can look back on, on 2,000 years ago and look at what happened historically, sovereignly, in line with God's plan to reveal redemption and salvation for all man, what we need to do is fast forward to our day and age and say, how are we in danger of doing this again? Because if Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, can walk among us and us not get it, do we think because we have the Scriptures that we are bulletproof? That there's just no way that we could get it wrong, that we could get him wrong, that we could get his emphasis, what he is doing, what his heart is, that we could get misconstrued with our own hopes and expectations. Church, please, we do this all the time. 
for those of you who are here today and, and you might not, oh wow, yeah, the glare, that's why I have these on, the glare. Um, um, for those of you who are here today and maybe you don't, maybe if you're honest with yourself, you would say, you know what, I know maybe a little bit about Jesus. I know a little bit about what he did, but I have no idea what it looks like to make him the Lord of my life. I have no idea about this whole like being made into a holy temple and being a part of his, like all that stuff that Rob was talking about. Like that just sounded like some, some really weird carpentry. Like what was he even talking about there? If this is all so new to you, and you hearing that Jesus came for a purpose to die for your salvation, to be your savior, to be your sacrifice, to give his blood in the place of yours. And this is the first time that you are hearing this. I'm going to tell you right now, you are going to be tempted because of the world that you live in to expect that Jesus looks way different than what scripture says from here on forward. You are going to be, you are going to be led to believe that Jesus is going to be coming back on a donkey. That he is going to be this chosen meets laughing Jesus from the 1990s who's going to like come back in this peaceful way and he's just going to love everyone. And as long as you kind of believed in something, that something is going to be good enough. And you know what? This kind of Jesus, he ain't putting anybody in hell. Maybe Hitler. I don't know. We always have a problem with Hitler. Now maybe Putin. I don't know. But like this Jesus doesn't really hold us accountable. This Jesus doesn't really deal with with sin. This Jesus doesn't really have standards of righteousness and justice. And so you may be tempted to believe the lie of the day, which is the Savior who is coming back is going to be this humble, gentle, meek, mild, everyone gets a trophy Jesus, because that's very much the talk of the times. And that talk is so loud that it is easy to miss the reality that the one who came on a donkey is going to come back on a white horse. And that the one who came with palm branches waving the first time around is going to come down on a mountain with a sword in his hand. And he is not coming to pay for sin. He did that already. He is coming to defeat sin once and for all. To defeat the evil one. To throw him in a pit for all of eternity. And he is not coming to offer a gift. He was that gift. He offered himself for you and for me 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. He did that for you and for me. But when he comes back and every knee bows and scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That is not saying that everyone will be saved. That is saying that we will stand before him in light of his gift and we will give account of what we did with it. Did we reach out and take hold of it in faith? Did we make him our savior and Lord? Or did we make him into something other than what he is supposed to be? If you are here today and Jesus has never been your Savior and Lord, you have never cried out to him and confessed your sin, you have never made him the Lord of your life, I beg of you, at home, here today, come forward when Robin Cricket come down and just ask them, how can I be saved? How can I reach out and grab hold of Jesus as my Savior? 
And they would love to talk to you. I'll be down for I would love to talk to you. Reach out to us via email, email at harborshores.org. We would love to start a conversation with you about what it looks like to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and to see him both as he was and as he is and as he forever will be. Church, believers, followers of Jesus, it is possible for us who understand and know who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross and have believed it in faith to also miss the mark on who he is and what he's wanting to do in the here and now. We do it in so many different ways. We do it in so many different ways, myself included. And yet, I think one of the big ones that I, that I see, that I see in myself, that I've seen in myself through the years, and I still see it in myself at times, is that sometimes we... Our misunderstanding of his amazing grace causes us to lose sight of his passion for our personal holiness. I love that we are going through 1 Peter right now because 1 Peter is that book that holds intention. Both both our, our call to pursue holiness, to be a pure people, and also the reality that Jesus Christ died to secure that. That we are a holy people. That we are a pure people. That's kind of weird, right? And we live in this tension of the already not yet. And it is a temptation for us to say, because of grace, holiness is secondary. It doesn't really matter. We don't really have to make that a pursuit. How do you get there in Scripture? How do you read the New Testament? How do you read the Old Testament and get there? We are that temple that Rob spoke of today. We are that, that those living stones that are being built into the, the, the dwelling place of God to be with man. When he comes down, he will dwell in our midst. We are being created into his new temple. And if Jesus cared enough to enter into a physical space and cleanse it twice at the beginning and end of his ministry, are we foolish enough to think that he doesn't care about the cleansing of his people? He wants us to pursue that which he has already secured for us in absolute confidence that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. But that doesn't negate his desire for us to walk in it, to pursue it by the power of the Spirit with everything that we have. I want to read some passages that we've already gone over or that we will be going over in greater depth in 1 Peter just to, just to flesh out this idea. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. We'll see if my mouth moisture levels can get me through this. <laughs> Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's coming. His grace is coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So we have it. Christ secured it. It's coming with him when he comes riding on the clouds or when we stand before him. And yet, we're called to pursue it. We're called to pursue that set-apart nature, that holiness. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are not in your works, but are in God. What he did for you, when he died for you, when he raised for you. Two verses one through five of first Peter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in closing, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 2. I love these verses. But you are a chosen race. Speaking to believers, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. In his life, Jesus showed us that he cares about the purity of his temple and the worship within it. Through his death, he secured the purity of his new temple, us, those who believe, his people, his beloved, his chosen race, his royal priesthood. And he calls us now to pursue holiness as his people, not by our own power, but by the power of the one who now dwells in us, both now and forever, that by his power, our lives would be a pure and glorious reflection of the one who lives in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace that when we miss it, when we, when we expect you to be something other than the you that you've revealed yourself to be, that in the same way that you allowed yourself to be nailed to a cross for those, uh, for those very people who were shouting for your crucifixion, God, you meet us in our ignorance, in our foolishness, in the way that we miss it. And you offer us that same love, that same grace, that same forgiveness, that same reconciliation and renewal and relationship. Thank you for being a God of grace who meets us where we are. By your spirit, teach us, counsel us, help us to see the truth of who you are and what you are doing and help us to prepare ourselves to receive our King now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.